So hey, let's go ahead. Let me just kind of finish up a little bit. I probably won't go through all the rest of the details in the notes. And I, and I don't think I need to push this point any further. I think we've made the point pretty well by now. But uh, I, I have it as letter C on my notes. It says, is, yeah, letter C at the bottom there. Is Jesus restoring his kingdom? And let me just kind of run through this. All right. By labeling John the Baptist as Elijah and announcing the defeat of evil, Jesus was clearly announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. That was Matthew 22, Matthew 12, and Luke 10. Acts 1, 9 through 11. Jesus ascends into heaven, and the word ascend has this understanding of being enthroned. Right. And you'll see that in 1 Corinthians 15. Acts 1, 8. They will receive, point number three. They'll receive power, uh, and a power is a sign of the coming of the kingdom, which is Revelation 1, 6. Uh, number four, in Acts, Luke uh, then places the rule of Jesus in tension with the rule of Herod and with Caesar. So the way Acts plays out is that chapters 1 through 12 is where the gospel of Jesus is confronting Herod and Herod's effort to stop, to stop them, which climaxes in chapter 12. By the way, if you remember the story, Herod has uh, um, James and, and uh, killed and almost Peter. And at the end of the chapter, what happens to Herod? He dies. He's killed. Then 13 to 28, now focus on the gospel going to the Roman world, and that's where it's confronting Caesar. And the book of the gospel, the book of Acts climaxes or closes with Paul in Rome proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in the midst of, uh, in, in, in confrontation to Caesar. And that, that's one way of looking at it. Right, I'm going to skip over the story of the kingdom is being told without reference to Jewish symbols, land and temple and Torah. I won't worry about that right now. Uh, we'll skip over that there. Uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I have that as number two on my notes. I'm not sure if my notes conform with you, but it's probably page two now. You on page two? Yeah. Very good. Um, the Father will give you another counselor. This is the second page, number page two. You got it? See where I'm at? All right. The Father will give you another counselor, uh, uh, another advocate, the spirit of truth. Uh, the, and I mentioned this very briefly when we looked at the Gospel of John, but the word paraclete is the Greek word. It's a really hard word to translate. I, I think we discussed this very briefly in the Gospel of John. Really hard word to translate because no English translation does complete justice to it. So sometimes it's translated as comforter. Problem with comforter is that it has the connotations of a modern day counselor with you laying on a couch and, feel, and being comforted. But it's beyond that, because comfort, of course, is comfort in the midst of persecution. The word counselor has the same idea of, of this modern day counselor and, and you go tell him your problem. Right. But it's, it's beyond that. The word advocate, uh, has this idea of a legal, of a legal, uh, someone intervening for you legally in a courtroom. In 1 John 2, by the way, the word paraclete absolutely means an advocate. It says in, John, in 1 John, it says, we have an advocate before the Father, right? Jesus Christ. So Jesus is actually, actually advocating for us in a legal context. And there the word paraclete means an advocate. But in John 14, it, it means kind of all of the above. And so you actually see some translations say, uh, I'm going to send you another parakletos. And you're like, well, that actually does us no good because I don't know what parakletos means. Well, it kind of means all of the above. So this is one of those examples where maybe comparing different translations would actually be helpful because all of them are kind of correct. Now, note, of course, that the word another, I'm going to send you another counselor, implies that Jesus is one of the counselors. He's, he, he is an advocate. He is the parakletos, and the Spirit is also that make sense? The Holy Spirit is not the parakletos oh, yeah. separate from Jesus. They're both the parakletos. All right. Uh, moving on. Uh, he's one who comes alongside, the helper, a friend in the court. There's no exact equivalent in English. Counselor, helper, I, I described that. Number three, we mentioned this last time. Jesus is not leaving them as orphans. 
Um, John 14, I will come to you. Uh, number four, the Holy Spirit will be with them and in them. John 14, 17. Uh, number five, he'll convict the word of sin. Uh, John 16. And the role of the, of the Spirit, number one, to bring back to remembrance all that Jesus taught, to bear witness of Jesus. He'll convict the word of sin. He'll guide them into all truth and disclose what is to come. All right. Now, Kevin made a comment, if, I, if you don't mind me putting, putting this out uh, earlier, that it seems like everything that we're talking about in here is really just pointing us, it's all about Jesus. And, 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 and I'm, 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 I'm pleased. Yeah. Uh, I'm, because that means I think I've done my job in the sense that the gospel really is about Jesus. And these other peripheral things really are peripheral to, to Jesus. But let me go one more step now. And I mentioned this when we studied the Gospel of John. Remember I said that you could argue that the Gospel of John is more about... Anybody remember? Lord have mercy again on whatever's going on outside and, and, and the sirens to go by. Right. Uh, remember, I, I, remember I said that you could make an argument that the, that the Gospel of John is more about the Holy Spirit than about Jesus. Remember that? Yes. Because from chapter 2, he turns water into wine. Chapter 3, you have to be born of water in the Spirit. Chapter 4, the woman at the well, I would give you living water. It's about, it's some, there's a water thing going on. And then we find out in John 7 that the water was referring to the Spirit whom he had not yet given. And then we see by chapter 12, I gotta get out of here so that the Holy Spirit can come. Because you've got to go to the Gentiles. I'm sorry, you gotta go to the Gentiles. Chapter 13, I'm leaving. Well, oh, I'm sorry. Chapter 13, he washed the disciples' feet. There's water again. Chapter 14, I'm leaving. It's for your good that I go, because I'm gonna say. And so by 14, it's clearly focusing upon the person of the Spirit. Well, how about if we say this? From Acts on, it's about the Spirit, folks. Because what the Spirit does is he reminds us about Jesus. So the reason why we still go with Acts through Revelation that it's still about Jesus is because the Spirit's telling us about Jesus. So we're good. So if you want to say it's about Jesus, that's fine. But in all reality, there's a strong emphasis upon the person and role of the Holy Spirit. He is the active person of the Trinity in the life of the church and the life of the believer today. His role is to make Jesus known. That's fine. So when we talk and say it's about Jesus, that means the Spirit's doing his job. But Jesus didn't leave us as orphans because he sent us a Spirit. Now let's also be clear. We can get into trouble if we make too great a distinction, and this is not blasphemous at all or, or heretical at all. Um, if, we, if we try to make too great a distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit, what we do as, as Christians sometimes is what well, we're arguing against the Jehovah's Witnesses and maybe their perversion of the Trinity. I'm sorry to say it that way, but I think, I think it is, right? It's a denial of the Trinity. We, can, we argue against Mormons. We argue against these other religions who, who claim to believe in the Trinity or, or deny outright the Trinity or have a perversion of it. And so what we do is we say there's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons. They're distinct persons, yet they're all one. And, and, we, and that's fine. But then we find out that there's an overlap. Because Jesus says, and lo, I'm with you always. But he's not with us always, folks. He resurrected. And, I said, and the answer is yes, he is. He's with us in the person of the Spirit. And so there isn't this absolute... A distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit. There's an overlap between them, and it, it, that's part of the mystery there. So, bear that in mind. Now, we can also go even one more step. It's about Jesus. 
Remember, Jesus is God made known, right? Remember John 1.18, no one's ever seen God, but God the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. The Bible is a story about God being made known. That's one way of saying it. The Bible is a story about God dwelling among his people. That's another way of saying it. So it's temple theology. Eden was a temple. Adam and Eve were kicked out of it. How is God's temple presence going to be restored is the great question. The answer is through God himself, who was, right? He tabernacled among us. Remember John 1, 14. We beheld his glory. Jesus says, I'm the temple of God. So there's your great temple theology. The Spirit comes as God himself and indwells us. It's still about the temple. It's about God dwelling among us. The Spirit is God made known within us. Our task, being empowered by the Spirit, is to make God known, which means we can go a third step. It's about Jesus. It's about the Spirit. It's about the church. Because the church is the temple of God to the world. I will make you a light of revelation to the nations. Jesus was that light, and now we are that light. So I think a good perspective, and I would argue, and I'm not alone on this, G.K. Beale, N.T. Wright, and many others have, have, have encapsulated this much, much more, articulated this much better than I'm doing now. I think a good theology of the New Testament, right, what's called a biblical theology, reading the New Testament is a story which is, of course, continuing the Old Testament story as well, understands that's about Christ, who imparts the Spirit, who indwells the church, who makes God known to the nations. And in doing so, as manifesting the kingdom, at some point, if we cut to the end very briefly, at some point, the last per I have no idea how to say this any other way, so this is not theologically, you know, whatever. Some person is going to be the last person that God has deemed to be saved, whatever your theology on predestination, who cares? At some point, there's a that it's the end and Christ returns. And the kingdom has comes in fullness, and death and sin are gone. And behold, all things become new. In the meantime, right, we live in that tension of what we might call the you know, theology class, the already not yet, the alreadyness of the kingdom. We are new creations. God's temple dwells within us. We are God's temple, and yet we still sin, and we're corrupted by that, and we still die. We have pains, etc. This is how I think we read the New Testament. So what I, what I stress again then is that the New Testament is about God's mission. So it's about the Spirit uh, um, there. Any questions now? Right, let me go briefly to, to point, what I have is point number three on my notes. Is it number three on yours? Jesus's? Uh, no. Let's see. The, uh, I have another number three. Let's see. Let's get to the third page. Let me see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bold number three. There you go. Bold number three on page three. Please, yeah. Are we to raise people from the dead? Maybe. Good question. Maybe. Well, why did the disciples do it? That, that's a good question. So the question is, why, did, why are, are we to raise people from the dead, and why do the disciples do it? The first thing to note in the, in the book of Acts, because this is an Acts question, is that the first half of the book is about Peter, and the second half of the book is about Paul. We call it the Acts of the Apostles, but that's actually not a very good name, because you don't even hear about most of the apostles, except Peter and John early on. You hear about James only as he's killed. 
And then Paul takes over. And Peter actually flees and we don't even know where he went. Now, Peter reappears in 15, but it's Peter. And, and, and of the 12, it's only Peter, because the James in Acts 15 is not the James of one of the apostles. It's James, the brother of John, uh, of, of Jesus, because James, the brother of John, is killed in 12. So of the apostles, of the original 12, it's only Peter and John, mentioned in chapter 3 and 4. And then really it's about Peter. Peter reappears in 15 briefly, and then we focus on, on Paul, who's in that. Uh, but what you notice about them is, is that they are doing the works and deeds that Jesus did. Remember, greater works that I, that, 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 that I have done shall you do also. So Jesus raises the dead, so does Peter. Now what you also need to note, and this is very relevant for Revel, from Romans on, is that Paul's apostleship is always being questioned by the opponents. And we'll talk about those opponents in a little bit. And so what Luke goes to, now remember Luke is a companion of Paul. Luke travels with Paul. So when you read the book of Acts, you'll start seeing the word we, and now you know Luke's present. Yeah. Right, and then you'll see, and Paul and his companions went here, which means Luke stayed behind. And then we sail, and you're like, oh, Luke's there again. So Luke is going to come in and out of the story of Acts, but when he comes in the story, he's with Paul. And he knows that Paul's apostleship is being questioned. So it's important for Luke to say, whatever Peter did, Paul did. So if Peter raised the dead, so did Paul. And so, that, so you do see that happening there. You also see the experiential elements there, right? The, the speaking in tongues and other spiritual things manifesting itself there. And now we kind of get into the the different denominationalisms of, 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 of Protestantism, right? And how we read the text. Some of the charismatics are going to read the text and say that's normative. <coughs> that what you see in the book of Acts is descriptive of what is the norm. Others will say that what you see happening in the book of Acts is descriptive of something that's exceptional. Because as the gospel's going around, there had to be this attestation to it, this, this supporting evidence, this confirming it. So that when Peter's preaching in Acts 10, before he even does the altar call, sorry for all you Baptists, but before he even does the altar call, right, the Spirit of God falls upon the people. And Peter's answer is, who's to keep, me from, who's to keep these people from being baptized? Because there had to be that dynamic. Remember, Peter's preaching to Gentiles. And he's going to be in trouble with the Jews back home. Because he went into a Gentile's home and he ate with them. And so his answer is, uh, I had nothing to do with it. I was just preaching to them and the Spirit fell on them before I even did an altar call. So I think that there's a way, that there's maybe a justification for saying it's descriptive of something that's exceptional and not normative. And so, so we have to answer those questions there. Well, that's good. Yeah. It's all about God establishing the church. Correct. Uh, and he, he used these signs and wonders with these apostles to, to, to let the world know that that was something unusual. The kingdom of God was operative. I just, when we begin to expect that today is what I'm saying. Correct. Because the child of the church is established. Right. That, that's correct. So, uh, are you saying that the raising of the dead, that was something that was rare? I think it's, it's exceptional. 
And I think. And so, if, are you saying because it was exceptional then, you don't expect it today? I I would I would not I would not have the presumption to say that it doesn't happen right. or that it can't happen. I would be skeptical. I think reasonably skeptical and advisedly skeptical, um, because I think when you see people making claims of raising the dead, they tend to be uh, kind of out there on some fanatical wing of some nature, right? But, I, but, I, but I've also been in India, and I've been in India, and I've seen the miraculous, and I'm like, oh, I have no idea what to do with this. I'm a Westerner. We don't do this around here. And, and, and I saw the church, they expected it, the, 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 the supernatural. Uh, and, and I think there was something that I had to learn from that. There was a church here locally. Yeah, yeah. About 15, 20 years ago, they, they, the church started pray, kind of pray their pastor back to life. Well, right. And you said tried to or they did? Tried to. Tried to. Well, let's not talk about... You put some emphasis on how you explain it. Let's not talk about raising the dead, but what about as far as should we be able to heal the sick? Right, right. I think the fact... The gift of healing is a spiritual gift. What you, I personally do not believe the gifts, I think the gifts still, still exist. Okay. So you, you find some Presbyterians and Reformed theologians that said the gifts ceased at the end of the New Testament time. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the case. I, I think that the gifts still continue. But the gift of healing does, is not something that, that the one who has it can always heal. Because they don't always heal. So, so we know that the gift of healing is not something that's under my control alone. I think God does work with us. So I think that there's, there are times, and we should pray for healing. And note in the book of James, when it says, uh, uh, essentially, you know, the, uh, uh, lay hands on those who are sick, um, and it says, um, and anoint them with oil. Right. The, uh, oil, and we know this from a, word, a man named Galen. Galen is an early, I think first century, I could be wrong, first, second century, um, uh, secular medical doctor. And he tells us that oil was the most common medicine in the ancient world. And you note the parable of the, product of the uh, uh, Good Samaritan. It says that the Good Samaritan picked the man up and he bandaged his wounds and he put oil on his wounds. Right. He's applying medicine. It's not holy oil. I, I don't think it's holy oil, some mystical thing. That he, it's medicine. So I think what you see in James saying, hey, get the elders of the church together, pray over him because the, uh, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much, and give him some medicine. So there's nothing wrong with saying it can also be through medicine also. But I have no problem with the idea that, that well, God does indeed heal. It's kind of like you say, the Acts is a, it's a continuation even to, to this day. I, I think so. So some of those practices, you can't just cherry pick them out. That, I, I think so. I also don't think <laughs> that, that it's necessarily normative though, right? Uh, in terms of, you see people going, well, we need to get back to the Acts church and live like they lived. And, and you saw this in the 60s. They lived as a community. But they lived as a community because they were intensely persecuted. Yeah. And they were ostracized from, the, from, from society so they, they couldn't participate in the economy of the society. So the wealthier members had to sell their property and, and live, they had to live as a community. It was necessary. I don't think that's the norm. Or, or, or I don't think Acts is prescribing. I think it's describing. Mm -hmm. So, so I think we'll yeah, get that well, way. Yeah, makes sense. Because yeah. you have prophets. You people that claim to be y'all. You have Benny and Anna and everybody and all that. You know, yeah. so. Even our own personal testimony, we've all, I'm just been, healed. We've all been healed of something. <laughs> Many of us have, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's right. Well, I was just saying, it was like you are saying, it, 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 we're not walking around with this healing power. Yeah. Not necessarily. Right. Yeah. 
Christ could use, he could see, he could do what he, he could. wanted to do. Mm -hmm. He could. Yeah. I do think that we tend to not believe enough, though. Yeah. Right. right? I, I tend to think we, 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 we become too skeptical and too doubtful, and so, and I think we don't believe, and I think especially in the Presbyterian world that, that I come from, uh, which, which is a, 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 a mind-centered, intellectual-centered, and not heartfelt uh, a community. So I think there's a problem there. Now let's move on. Number three, the big bold number three on page three. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jews from around the world are, are, are hearing the disciples speak in their own language. That's Acts 2, right? If you look at the four, at the, at the people groups, and I'm going to put a map up in a little bit once I turn my computer on. That it seems that Peter has, I'm sorry, the, uh, um, Luke has referenced people first from the east, then from the north, then from the west, and then from the south. Luke, people come from the east, they come from the north, they come from the west, and all people from the whole world have come at Pentecost. I believe it's very strong that you could read Pentecost as a reversal of Babel. It's the new creation, and we're all hearing them in our own language. It's the reversal of Babel that's going on. So there's this outpouring of the Spirit. They're hearing, they're hearing uh, people speak in their own language, etc. Now, uh, I won't go into all that there. Uh, there. I'm going to skip number four. I'm going to skip number five. Uh, let's go to number six very briefly. The very, very last line on, on, on uh, page three. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. I'll, I'll look at it in more detail later. The question is, how might this gospel be received? And the answer is, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks... It's foolishness. So the Jews is a stumbling block, and the Gentiles is foolishness. Right? The Jews stumbled over the stumbling block, which was Jesus. To the Gentiles, it's just foolishness. It's about a Jewish Messiah who was crucified by Rome. And when you think about this, this just doesn't make any sense. To the Jews... Jesus dies by crucifixion. Which, based on Deuteronomy, I believe it's Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. In Deuteronomy 21, it says that anyone who dies on a tree is under God's curse. And the Jews, that's Deuteronomy 21 now, the Jews had to decide once crucifixion was invented and once it comes into the, the Jewish world, and it comes in earlier, but the Romans, of course, really practiced it the most. The Jews had to decide, if you die by crucifixion, are you under the curse of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21? And they said, yes. That makes Jesus a cursed Messiah. But cursed Messiah is an oxymoron. All right, an oxymoron are two things that don't go together. Messiah means anointed by God. And cursed by God and anointed by God don't work together. Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews. Right? But to the Gentiles, all right, okay, you, you want me to believe in some Jewish guy as the king of kings. Oh, sorry, and he died by crucifixion by Rome. If our authorities, and Rome's predicated upon justice, and everybody knows it's kind of a farce, but it really is predicated upon justice, Rome, Lady Justice, right? And we thought his, his claims of being a king made him worthy of dying by crucifixion. I mean, and crucifixion is the worst known way to die. Yeah. It's, it's horrific. It's disgusting. <clears throat> it, it, 
And you want me to believe in a Jewish guy who died by crucifixion? Oh, on, on, on he's alive. <laughs> this is foolishness. And so here's what's, here's what's crazy. By the end of the first century, there may have been up to a million Christians. 120 in Acts 2. 70 some odd years later, a million. And the million converts were from Jews and Gentiles. It was a stumbling block, and it was foolishness. How did this ever happen? And I think it's not just the supernaturalness, because that's, important. that's an important element of it. It's the gospel, and it's the power of the gospel to transform lives. And when they see you, and you, and you, and they go, there's something different about these people. Yeah. Right? One side note, and it's only one side note because I'm already, I'm already gonna run out of time tonight anyways. There's a, there's a uh, I can't I'll think of the name of the book. Uh, uh, Hunter is the name of the author. I can't think of his name right now. Uh, and I can't think of the title of the book either. I'll, I'll come up with it later. He, wrote a, he did a research, and I, he did extremely good research, reading original sources from the first, second, third, and fourth centuries. So he's reading Irenaeus in the Greek and in the Latin and Tertullian and Cyprian. And he's reading all the church fathers. And his argument is that the reason why the Christian church grew in the second, third, and fourth centuries, before Constantine, so not first century, not New Testament stuff, second, third, and fourth century, the reason why it grew was because they practiced the virtue of patience. Now, patience was defined by the early church as being um, faithful in the midst of suffering. Patience was enduring suffering. Go ahead, kill me. Go ahead, torture us. Go ahead, persecute us. They willingly lovingly, sacrificially laid down their lives in front of, of Rome. Right? They practiced passiveness, in other words, non-aggressive, non-violence. They didn't retaliate. If anyone slapped you on the right cheek, turned him the other, they literally believed that and they lived it out. And the Romans went, wow, I want in. Right? Tertullian, if you ever heard his name, second century church father, Died right around the year 200, so he wrote 160s to 200. He wrote a letter to the emperor, one of the emperors who was persecuting Christians. And he says, like, why are you persecuting us? We're good people. We're the kind of people you want in your empire. We pay taxes. We follow your laws. We're good. We don't steal. We're, we're, we're the kind of citizens you want. And then he made this claim. He says, and by the way, when you kill us, it doesn't actually do you any good. He says, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. He says, when you kill us, you're spilling more seeds and more Christians grow. Because what happens is, when the Christians are killed, others go, you know what? Rome's the bad guy. We know it. That guy's a good person. That woman's a good person. And it draws them to Christianity. So the miraculousness of the gospel, as it transforms the lives of the Christians is why it's still here today. So I find this a, a miraculous thing. All right, any questions? All right, so here we go, Acts, any questions? So Acts is gonna trace now, go ahead. 
and maybe this is way off, can you juxtapose that against Muslims? Um, that a lot of Muslims are very, very good people Correct. and are willing to give their lives for their religion today. Correct. Maybe even more so than Christians today. Correct. Um, and that you kind of see what's going on as they die, they become even more fervent sometimes as far as their religion and as far as followers. I, I think you can see, I think you can see a Christness in it. Although I think today it's getting overshadowed by the jihadist. Right. And it was there, the, I don't know, the churches, let's put the, let, me, let me apply it to the church. And it's not just the church, but, but it's, it's culturally. The, those who suffer righteously often draw the empathy and sympathy of the larger public. Right? So it's Martin Luther King Jr., it's Gandhi. They, have, they, they, they were right. It works. It really does. And the church is living proof of it. It's the hardest way to, the, however. <coughs> and it doesn't prove the group right, because Muslims can do it too. Right. Right. And so can other, other, other faiths. But it is the way of Jesus. And, and it, the church's history has shown that when we follow that way of Jesus, it actually expands the kingdom. So, so correct. And, let me ask you what that and, and, the, and the Crusades, by the way, prove us wrong. Right. Yeah. But, but that's not the way to do it. Right. 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 Yeah. Go ahead. Good. Yeah. When, when, when uh, Matthew 25 talks about the sheep nation versus the goat nation. Okay. And the, and the, and the sheep nation is an illustration of meekness. Correct. And suffering. And that can be applied to uh, the Muslims or, in, or Hindus who are very, some of them are very meek and kind. But they're not the church. Correct. Nor are they the Jews. And that's where Paul deals with the uh, sheep nations who will be separated and God in, in, invites them to the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And that idea with those sheep nations during that time of sufferings for the Jews, the sheep nation, were the ones caring for the, the sheep. Right, and the, the sheep are, I, are doing it for Jesus. That's right. That's, right. That, that's, the, that's, the, that's your distinction. Right, let's stop with